And then I have the, the pleasure of um, introducing Dr. Mike Goheen, uh, who's going to be teaching for us this morning. And a lot could be said about Mike. Um, I met him probably in 2011 or 12 as they were beta testing a new seminary down in the valley that a friend, Chris Gonzalez, invited me to be a part of. And when I met Mike and his wife, Marnie, I went, oh, this is different and really, really good. In the next five years of my life, uh, every Tuesday I'd leave here from Prescott at about 4 a.m. to get to your house at 6 and spent about five years through that program. Um, and I could talk about his books that he's written if you want to make them really, really uncomfortable. Get the True Story of the Whole World. That's one of his books that he did with Craig Bartholomew. And ask him to sign it because he would just feel so comfortable. No, you don't make him feel strange. Um, but he's written tons of books, double PhD, all that kind of stuff. But what I would say is Mike loves his wife, Marnie. And you guys have been married how long now? 43 years, uh, four kids. 11 grandkids, and a legacy of loving Jesus in the church. Next to Anthony Garcia, there's, there's nobody in my life that has had, um, outside of family members, as profound of an impact as, as you have in terms of discipleship and love of Jesus in his church. And so I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 1, the whole chapter through 2-5, pray, and then uh, Mike is going to teach Isaiah for us this morning. Isaiah chapter 1. Verse 1 says, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers." Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. 
Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Please plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the manner, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. They will burn together with no one to quench the fire. Chapter 2. This is what Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the last days. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of all the mountains, and it will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we will walk, we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we get a glimpse of your will, your way, your plan in your story through the reading of Isaiah, we ask that our hearts would become more in tune with it all. That you would reveal sin that needs to be repented of. Faith as we um, look to follow you well today. And so would you bless the preaching of your word and our brother Mike as he brings it to us. May the words of his mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, God our strength and redeemer. It's in your son, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you welcome up Mike Goheen? 
It's good to be here. It's always good to be in churches where some of our graduates are. Um, Jonathan didn't tell you a whole lot, but the way we do seminary education is in our living room. Marnie makes breakfast for the morning classes. She makes dinner for the evening classes. We sit in groups. I think Jonathan had 13 graduates in his uh, class. 13 people. We sit in a in a circle in our living room and we study for three hours together and we get to know those students very well. I don't like to call them students actually. I'd rather call them cohort members. Uh, we get to know these church leaders very well and many of them are in their uh, late 20s, 30s, some into their 40s and uh, they're about the age of our kids. My oldest is 41 I think. My youngest is 35. And so they're all in the range of the age of our kids. We get to know them well and really get to love them. So Jonathan became more than simply a student. He became someone that was in our home every, uh, every week that we grew to love. And we're interested. I think this is the second time I've preached in, in a church that you've pastored, Jonathan. So it's good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for being willing to sit and listen to me. I get to spend my uh, half of my life in the beautiful city of Vancouver, Canada. I'm Canadian. I get to spend the other half of my life in the beautiful city of Phoenix. I'm also American. I love both of those cities, but they're cities that are very, very different from one another. I love both of them because they offer so many rich things for human life and people who live in those cities. But I also get to go to other cities on a regular basis. I get to go to San Diego, Santiago, Chile, because we do some teaching there in the seminary there. And so I'm getting to know that city over the last three or four years as I've spent time there. For the last 10 or 11 years, I've got to spend time in some of the cities of Brazil. And perhaps my favorite city of the world is up in the northeast of Brazil, a small city by Brazilian standards of 3 million, called Fortaleza. I also get to spend time every year in the city of Budapest in Hungary, training some pastors there. And as I think through Vancouver, Phoenix, Santiago, Fortaleza, Budapest, I think of all these cities, and, and I love each of them. Each of them offers so many different gifts, and all cities do that kind of thing. That's the place of politics that brings justice and order. That's the place where economics and business thrives, and where there's an exchange of goods. That's the place of the development of information and communication technology from which we benefit so much, the media. It's the place where there are airports, where it enables us to travel in many places. It's the place also of sports teams and art centers and so many other things that enable us to enjoy very many good gifts of leisure. But it's also the place of a whole lot of pain and a whole lot of poverty, corruption, homelessness. My oldest daughter and oldest son-in-law have lived in a very poor part of Vancouver. They pastored there. 
And as they, they worked, they worked among the homeless and the gay community and the drug community and prostitution. And there's a whole lot of pain in the city as well. Because the city doesn't only offer many rich gifts, it's been messed up from very early in human history by idolatry. The book of Isaiah, the message of Isaiah, revolves in many ways around God's hope and plan for the city. Jerusalem, or Zion, appears over a hundred, almost a hundred times in the book of Isaiah. Only Jeremiah speaks of the city as often as Isaiah. And you'll notice that the word city was found about three times already in the first chapter of Isaiah. The faithful city. A city called to be a faithful city, but has become a prostitute and has become a city like Sodom and Gomorrah. But that one day is going to be renewed again to be a faithful city. Alec Motyer, who's written my favorite commentary in Isaiah, calls the book of Isaiah the book of the city. The book of the city. Before I delve into Isaiah, I want to paint a little bit of a biblical theological backdrop that will enable us to enter in to Isaiah, the message of Isaiah. In Genesis 1, God, the story of God opens in a garden. But a command is given to humanity and a task that ultimately is going to lead that garden to become a city. It's been often pointed out that the biblical story begins in a garden, but then the command given to Adam and Eve to develop all the potentialities and the powers that he has placed within the, within the garden, as they are developed and human beings live in, uh, together in community, it moves ultimately more and more towards a city. God's intention was for human beings to live together in community and to develop the potentialities and to serve one another. This is where God would dwell. This is where God would rule. This is where humanity would live together in community, creating social and cultural communities and benefiting one another with all the gifts of his creation. In a sense, we might be able to say cities were God's intention and purpose for humanity. And it begins with Adam and Eve. But we see very quickly Adam and Eve turning against God in treasonous rebellion, and they begin to serve idols rather than the living God. And yet immediately in Genesis 4, we see that that cultural development continues in the line of Cain, and we're told that even that Cain built a city. That story of Genesis 3 through 11 traces what sin does to our world, and it finally culminates in this terrible story in Genesis 11 of the story of Babel. And the story of Babel is a city that reflects all the idolatry and the immorality and the injustice of sinful humanity. It's become the polar opposite of what God intended for his creation and his city. 
Jacques Ellul, in his book, The Meaning of the City, says it had become a counter-creation, standing against everything that God had intended for humanity. But in Genesis 12, God starts again. He starts again, as it were, with a second Adam, a second man now chosen that is going to develop a new humanity to be what God intended humanity to be. He's going to form this man, Abraham, into a great people. He's going to give them a land. He's going to restore the blessing of creation to him. And he's going to, they, they are now to build cultural communities that are to be what God intended Adamic humanity to be. We might say to develop into the kind of city that God intended humanity to be. And it would be the beginning point, and God would bring all the nations into that city, and God would form up, that God would have a people to be what God intended. That's the promise. A people living on a land, in God's presence, under his rule, developing the creation for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. That's what God intended. And he starts again with Abraham with the intention of bringing all nations in to that community. Now, I'm not going to trace the Old Testament story from there, but I just want to say that God begins to form that people. He does put them on the land. He does come and dwell among them. He does begin to rule among them. And Jerusalem becomes the capital, the center of this place of God's people living with him on the land under his rule, Jerusalem, or as the Psalms and Isaiah would call it, Zion. But Jerusalem becomes more than simply a city like other cities. It becomes the showcase of what God intends for urban life. Jerusalem is a theological symbol of what God wants the world to become. And we see that because the new Jerusalem is where the whole story ends in Revelation 21 and 22. It becomes this theological picture where Eden is restored to what God intended, where God comes to dwell among his people, where God rules his people, where they live out under his rule under, uh, and develop community under his rule. And it's a place where all nations will be gathered in. So Jerusalem is intended to be that place where God rules a people and all the nations are gathered in. This is the context in which we need to understand Isaiah. Because what we see is that Jerusalem has become, as we saw in chapter 1, a prostitute. It has become, rather than a faithful city, it has become like Sodom and Gomorrah. It has fallen into the same idolatry of the other cities of the, of the world, and now God is coming against that city. He prophesies in the 8th century to the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem is the capital, and it's just before the northern half of Israel falls, and it continues on through that fall. But there's an assault 
on Jerusalem in 701 B.C. But God miraculously intervenes. Jerusalem is saved. And now everybody believes God is dwelling here in Jerusalem. This is his city. It's inviolable. Nothing can happen against it. And Isaiah comes and says, no, that's not right. Because you are living in idolatry and immorality and injustice, God is going to come in judgment. And so we already see in Isaiah 1, as many people have pointed out, a summary, a summary of the entire book of Isaiah. And that is first, that Jerusalem has become an unholy city. Instead of being what God intended, serving the living God in all of cultural life, it's become a city that is serving idols. It's become a prostitute. It's become like Sodom and Gomorrah, a place of idolatry, injustice, and false worship. And that that's going to lead ultimately to judgment and exile. Secondly, there's going to be a mighty act of deliverance. It's described in chapter 1 as making your sins as white as snow, as purging dross, as removing impurities. There's going to be this mighty act of deliverance that's going to take place in and for Jerusalem. And thirdly, there's going to be the renewal of Jerusalem, which is going to become a city of righteousness, as we've read in Isaiah 1. A faithful city. A city of justice and righteousness. It's going to flourish like an oak in the last days. And God is going to rule the nations. And they are going to be gathered in to this faithful city. That's the message, in a nutshell, of Isaiah. An unholy, present Jerusalem, an unholy city that will be judged. God's mighty act of deliverance that is going to bring that city out of its idolatry and injustice. And thirdly, the renewal of Jerusalem that will one day fill the entire earth and become nothing less than the new creation. I don't know how many of you have watched the Bible Project video on Isaiah. I'd encourage you, I don't know if you encourage them regularly to do that, uh, Jonathan, but you, you should. Those are very, a lot of work goes into the little 10-minute videos a lot of scholarship goes in, and you can watch them. I think I've watched the one on Isaiah maybe 20 times. And along with all the study I've done, I started to see, boy, it capsulizes a lot. And you'll notice that it actually has two videos. One on Isaiah 1 to 39, and it has Isaiah 40 to 66. Now, interestingly, almost all scholars agree that Isaiah is divided up into three major books. The first book is Isaiah 1 to 39. And Isaiah is speaking to the community before exile that is gradually falling more and more into idolatry and he's prophesying against them. Then it begins in Isaiah 40 through 55. And there Isaiah seems to have transported himself into the future and he's speaking to Israel now after their exile. And he is saying, God is going to bring about a mighty act of redemption to liberate you from exile. Then Isaiah 55, or 56 through 66, 
describes the result of that mighty act of redemption. It's going to be nothing less than this new Jerusalem that will fill the earth, that by the time we get to the last chapters of Isaiah, that new Jerusalem has become nothing less than the new creation. And so I want to briefly take you through this book. I feel overwhelmed. I feel overwhelmed. I like doing this. But Isaiah is one of the richest books in the Bible. I would put it up there with books like Genesis, like Revelation, that are just long and rich and full. And you think, how in the world can you bring this? What do I have, 35 minutes? How do you do Isaiah in 35 minutes? Because you've got to paint the background and you've got to show how it leads to Christ. So 20 minutes on Isaiah. How do you do that? Well, forgive me if I, mess, if I miss some of your favorite parts. Um, one of my favorite things to do right now, Jonathan didn't get this, you have to come back for it, is to do Isaiah 40 to 55. And the reason I like it is because Isaiah 40 to 55 was the most widely read Old Testament text at the time of Jesus. It was the best known text, and it influenced the interpretation of the, of the gospel in the New Testament more than any other part of the Old Testament. So I'd like to take people through just that section. And as I was looking at my notes, I said, how do I summarize that in five minutes tomorrow? And then do Isaiah 139 in five minutes. And then I... No, it, it became difficult, but let me try. Hang with me. And we are going to get to the 21st century, too. In Isaiah 1 to 39, we see the failure of Jerusalem. The failure of Jerusalem. There is the warning of judgment. There are promises of renewal, but the focus is primarily on the judgment that is coming to Israel. One of the things I think we should pay attention to carefully is what sins does each prophet come after? Because they're all different. But in these first chapters, Isaiah seems to come after three or four things. Number one, that they have rejected God and they have turned their hearts to serve idols. That's the first problem, and that's been the problem from the beginning. Humanity was made to serve the living God, and if they don't serve God, they'll find something in creation to serve. They are serving creatures, and they will either serve God or something else. And the something else the Bible calls an idol. The second is that, and this is for every prophet, and think about this in our own context, idolatry always brings about injustice. Social injustice political injustice, economic injustice. It always brings about injustice, and that is probably the thing that Isaiah hits the hardest, the social, political, and economic injustice that exists in Israel. But the third thing is that when God's people are not living lives concerned for the good of others, when they are not showing love and mercy and justice towards others, God hates their worship. That is sobering. 
Because in Isaiah, we just read about it, and he says, I, I, I hate your worship. Amos is even stronger. It stinks before me, Isaiah says. Don't, bring it in, don't come into my presence doing this. And what does he critique? He critiques the very things he commanded them to do. So the problem is not what they were doing. The problem is they were coming into worship with hands of blood. They were coming in with lives that did not serve the living God in the whole of their lives, and they were coming into this time of worship. So we can call that maybe false worship. And so we see this failure of Jerusalem, but throughout these 39 chapters, there's always these glimmers of hope. He uses an image, for example, that Israel is like this tree, or Jerusalem's like this tree, but that God's judgment is going to come and chop it down with one of the nations. But this nation, this, this stump would be left. But he says, you know, out of that stump is going to become a branch, is going to come a sprout. And gradually that sprout is going to grow. And what we're going to see in Isaiah, that that sprout becomes the Messiah and the beginning of a whole new community that will be what God intended it to be. Isaiah 1 to 39 ends in exile. Israel in exile. Judgment falls on unfaithful Jerusalem. Isaiah 40 begins on a whole new note. If you know the Messiah, it's my actually my favorite musical. One of the things you should know about me is I'm not very artistic. But then what you should know about me is my wife and all my kids and all their spouses are. And so I have learned to love music. I've learned to love Shakespeare. I've learned to love art galleries. That wasn't my life before Marnie. My, I have a life B, M, before Marnie, and A, M, after Marnie. And my life after Marnie has been to love the arts and to grow to love the arts because I love my family. And so I've learned, I learned in many ways uh, to love the arts and to understand the beauty that we have in the arts. But back to Isaiah 40 to 55. What we see in the Messiah is that beginning, that be opening movement in the Messiah. Comfort ye. Do you know that song? If I could sing, I'd sing it for you. I just can't sing, but, well, it goes like, Comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people. Do you know that? How many of you know the Messiah? Oh, boy, that's a shame. You gotta go, you gotta listen to the Messiah. It is the most magnificent musical ever. It starts with that, comfort ye, my people. And it says, your sin has been paid for. Your exile is over. Your punishment is done. Your sin's paid for. And now he promises a new act of deliverance. And he paints that act of deliverance in terms of an image that is going to become one of the most common images in the entire New Testament. It's the image of a new exodus. In the old exodus, Israel was living in bondage and idolatry underneath the idolatry of Egypt. 
But God liberated them in a powerful act of redemption, liberated them from Egypt to bring them out and gave them the law and said, now serve me rather than the idols of Egypt. And so this liberation, this deliverance, this exodus out of Egypt was so God's people might serve them. And the picture now that is given in Isaiah is a picture of a new exodus. Here's what he says. He says, this is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea. Remember that Red Sea. A path through the mighty waters. Who drew out the chariots and horses. This is from the Pharaoh. And the army and reinforcements together. And they lay there never to rise again. Extinguished, stuffed out like a wick. Do you remember that? Do you remember that, Israel? When I did that and I brought you out of Egypt with the most powerful army, I drowned in the Red Sea. Forget those former things. You think those are great? Forget them. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. He says that two or three times in these chapters. I am doing a new thing. I'm going to make a way through the wilderness and stream through the wilderness. I'm going to bring you back. He says, I'm going to liberate you from the idolatry of the empires. There's going to be a new exodus. And if you've read these texts, probably you have the biggest, most awesome vision of God in the entire Bible in these chapters. Only certain sections of the Pentateuch begin to rival the size of the God revealed in these chapters 40 through 55. It is literally breathtaking the way it describes. Why? Because Israel didn't believe that he could do this. And God comes against them and says, you think those idols of Babylon and Persia have power? I am the creator of all things. I am the ruler of history. And those idols are nothing to me. He says, I have the power and I will not allow those idols to share my glory. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, but new things I declare, and before they spring up, I announce them to you. I am going to act in power, and I am the creator and the Lord of history, and I can do what I please, and no one can stay my hand in those puny little idols of Babylon and Persia. They're nothing. And he says, and this is going to become the backdrop for a lot in the book of Acts. He says, you are going to be my witnesses. You are going to witness this powerful event, and it's going to be your witness that witnesses this powerful event to the nations that will draw them in. And he says three, four times in these chapters, you will be my witnesses of what I am going to do. And then what is best known in these chapters is that this mighty act of liberation, this new exodus, is going to be accomplished by this figure that Israel could never have understood and even to this day struggled to understand. This called the servant. And this servant is going to suffer. And this servant is going to be filled with the Spirit. 
And this servant is going to lead in restoring and renewing Israel. And this servant is going to bring about the restoration and renewal of all nations. And we have four servant songs that gradually build up to Isaiah 53, which is the best-known text in Isaiah, that says this servant is going to suffer. And through that suffering, be exalted and accomplish this mighty act of redemption. And Israel never could understand how can this glorious God bring about a mighty act of redemption through the suffering and the humiliation of his servant. And so why in so many synagogues today they still don't read Isaiah 53? Because it doesn't make any sense in light of this text, Isaiah 40 to 55. But then in Isaiah 56 to 66... This new exodus leads to the arrival of the new Jerusalem, which, by the end, has morphed into the new creation. The result of this mighty act is that Israel is going to be gathered back and restored in Zion. And this gathering becomes Israel's prayer right down to the time of Jesus. Gather us back to Jerusalem and restore us in Zion. And after Israel is restored and they come back under God's law and they begin to serve God again faithfully, then God is going to draw the nations and they're going to be incorporated into this new Jerusalem and they are going to be participating again in this city and in this new humanity. But not only will the nations participate, by the end, all of creation is going to participate in this new Jerusalem, in this new Exodus. And so we read in Isaiah 65, 17, as we are coming right to the very end of the book, he says, See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And this is based on just show, on this city Jerusalem that is now morphed in to the whole new creation. So Isaiah pictures this, but he offers us a sober warning throughout these chapters. Those who refuse to come into the city and submit themselves to the rule of God are going to be left out of that city and going to be judged. An image that the book of Revelation will pick up. I did it. <laughs> that, that's Isaiah in 20 minutes, and I just, I, you don't know what's going on in my mind saying, say this, say this. No, don't say that, because it'll take, you'll be here forever. Say no, say don't. That's what I've been, that's, that's what's been going on for the last 15 minutes as I've taken you through Isaiah. Because it is so rich, and it is so full, and I want you to see all of this. But now, I'm going to do something which is really ridiculous. I'm going to suggest to you in one sentence the simple message of Isaiah. That God comes to an unfaithful city of Jerusalem and says, there's going to be a new exodus by which I will create a new Jerusalem that will become a new creation. New exodus, new Jerusalem, new creation. That's the hope of Isaiah. 
And as I said, Isaiah's words were read a lot, especially Isaiah 40 to 55, because they still, Israel believed for the next number of years, right up until Jesus, that they were still in exile, first under Babylon, then under Persia, then under Greece and the nations and the uh, empires that came from Greece, and then finally under Rome. And they, they loved this message of Isaiah 40, comfort, your exile is over. And they were looking for that day when God was going to return to dwell among them, when God would establish his rule again, when he would make his, feet of his people faithful again and create this Jerusalem to be a holy city. And so they begin to gather all of their hopes around God coming back to Jerusalem to restore this holy city. And we read at the beginning of Luke that Israel was looking for what? The redemption of Jerusalem, the consolation of Israel, and the redemption of Jerusalem. A day when Israel would be restored. All the nations would be gathered into the city, and the city would fill the earth with the glory and the love of God. That's what they were looking for. But they weren't ready for the radical, strange, for them almost absurd and astonishing way that God would fulfill this hope. They were looking for a geographical fulfillment that would be centered and focused in this place in the earth, Zion, this mountain where Jerusalem was. They were, look, they were centering their hope very much in an ethnic people. This would be a Jewish kingdom in Jerusalem. The nations would be forced to become Jewish and submit to the Jewish law when they would come in. But thirdly, not only geography and ethnicity, this was the most, most interesting thing. They were expecting a glorious, dramatic act that the whole world would see. They expected, at least some of them expected, God was going to break through the heavens and establish this kingdom of Mount Zion and that his glory would be seen throughout the whole earth and the nations would come and that every eye would see that their God, Yahweh, was the living God. And they were sure that this was going to be a dramatic cosmic event that everybody could see. And that those who would not submit would immediately be judged. But oh, how very different the fulfillment of Isaiah was. God does act in Jesus as the Messiah and he does come in that Jewish male, and he does come to Jerusalem, but in a way that is so utterly unexpected, in a way that is so utterly unexpected. The Gospels show us that God does come to dwell, among, does come to dwell among his people, but in Jesus. This is God coming back, and he sure doesn't look like it. He looks like a 32-year-old Jewish male. This is God coming back. In Jesus, God does announce that his rule has begun. This man is where God is now ruling. As Jesus announced good news, the kingdom has come. 
And by the way, that language of good news, the kingdom has come, comes straight from Isaiah three times. For example, Isaiah 52, good news, the kingdom has come. God's ruling in Jesus. In Jesus, and this is strange, God begins to gather his people back. But the gathering that Israel has been praying for, literally, they had 18 prayers they prayed every day. And one of those 18 prayers involved the prayer of gathering Israel back. And their prayer assumed that this gathering was going to be a dramatic cosmic event that all nations would see. But we're told that Jesus gathers his people by saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. And this little ragtag group of 12 people, that's the new Jerusalem? That's the new community? And I am quite sure, <laughs> go back and read this in, in Matthew 5, I think it's 16. When Jesus looks at the disciples in Matthew 5 and says, you, 12 of you, in other words, probably about, you're probably about eight, nine times as many people as Jesus points to at this time. You are the city on the hill. You are the light to the nations. Where does that come from? The book of Isaiah. Remember that promise in Isaiah that there'd be this great city on a hill, this, there'd be this light to the nations, God's renewing work. He says, you, 12 people, are that new city on a hill. And I'm sure they were looking at each other saying, you hear what he just said? I'm not sure he knows what he's talking about, or I'm sure they were, you know, they were confused. Matter of fact, the book of Mark is the book that shows us most that the disciples were as confused as everybody else. They didn't know what was going on. This didn't look like the kind of fulfillment. And even when everybody turns in John 6 to leave Jesus, Jesus turns to them and says, you going to go too? Peter kind of says, no, uh, we're sticking with you. But it was clear he didn't know what was going on and said so later, I think it was... Yeah, I think it was the very next chapter, John 7, he says, they didn't know what was going on until the Spirit was given. They didn't understand what was going on until the Spirit was given later. But they're being told that this little gathering of community, you are that new city on a hill. And then, this is the most strange part of the entire New Testament fulfillment. And folks, this is what I labor now to help my students feel the dissonance here. You and I know that the cross and the resurrection are the central events of the biblical story. Good. But what I want you to know is that was the strangest possible way for the Jews. For them, crucifixion, the humiliation, the torture, and the death of a victim, that particular thing meant false messiah. Others had claimed to be the Messiah, been crucified, and Israel said, false Messiah. But here is what the New Testament tells us about the crucifixion. That in the crucifixion, this mighty act of deliverance, this new exodus of liberating God's people from idolatry has taken place. Remember, Israel had built up this new exodus, waiting for a cosmic event that all eyes would see, well, all eyes did see it, but it sure didn't look like a new exodus. 
It was a naked man, humiliated, hanging on a cross, being tortured. And God is saying, that is the mightiest act of God in history. There, I brought about a new exodus. In the shameful cross of Jesus Christ, that's how I liberate people from idolatry so they can become fully human again. And then the resurrection. This new exodus leads to new creation. And we have a little saying around our home. Um, we, we, have, we have far too many pastors and theologians in our family. And that's not always so good. But we have a way, we have, this is what we see on Easter, something like this. We say, Christ is risen. I like to say, a new world has begun. But my wife is very insistent that we say, no, a new creation has begun which is actually more biblical. So Christ is risen. A new creation has begun. Paul paints Jesus as the first fruits, as the firstborn into this new creation. And this new creation has begun in the resurrection. And it's like Jesus has barged open the door from the old world into the new creation. And he's the first one in, the firstborn. He says, now follow me. And that new creation has begun in the resurrection. And the new Jerusalem, according to the New Testament, are these small communities that follow Jesus that are spread throughout the world. You, you small flock here in Prescott that is a lot bigger than Jesus' small flock are the city on a hill, a light to the nations. You are that new Jerusalem, that place where God dwells among his people, that place where God rules over his people. That place where human beings submit the entirety of their social and cultural lives to his rule. That place where God is gathering the peoples from all nations in. You are the city on the hill. Revelation ends with the picture of this new Jerusalem. The last chapters, beginning at chapters 18, tell what I call the tale of two cities. The destruction of Babylon that centered their lives in idolatry. And that is a picture of all other cities of the world, sadly including the beautiful city of Phoenix and Prescott. All other cities, all other cities built in idolatry will ultimately come down. And there will be one left and that's the coming of the new Jerusalem to fill the entire earth where God announces now the dwelling of God is with humanity. Now God's rule has begun on this creation and now this creation is what God intended it to be in the beginning. Story ends with this glorious city. But how are we to hear Isaiah today? Today? Well, I've already started by saying, you're the city in the hill. I like to use the image of a preview, a movie preview, which is those obnoxious things that show actual footage of the movie, but point to the coming feature that's coming future. We're to be actual footage of what this city looks like. You see, Prescott, when it's judged, is not going to disappear. It's going to be renewed. And so what's Prescott going to look like on the new creation? Well, you are to be a preview of that now. 
This is what God intends for this city. The shalom, the blessing, the justice, the righteousness that God intends for Prescott. It's the people of God that should be one in living and embodying that in their lives. They should be previews of what God intends for the creation and for the city. And so as I close, I think in putting it the way I have, there's two things that North American people need to hear. I'd like to go into how strange it is the church takes this new form from a cultural city to communities that live in all the cities of the world. That takes place in the book of Acts. We don't live as an actual city, but we live among actual cities shaped by idolatry. And it brings an incredible tension. How are Christians to be this contrast community that embody what God's intended over against the idolatry shaping our cities? How do we live that way in that tension? One of the easiest ways in the United States and in Canada has been to simply reduce the church to this little private community that just proclaims another worldly salvation in the future and leave the rest of public life up to the idolatry of our culture. But that's not what we are. We're called to be the new humanity, to be, as it were, the city of God and the whole of our lives, sexual and gender, educational and scholarship, political and economic, artistic and technological, leisure and sports. Every dimension were to say, this is what God intends for these good dimensions of creation. God has gifted humanity with all these marvelous gifts, all these potentials and powers that were to bless humanity and glorify Him. And they're not to be turned against humanity by idolatry, but harnessed and used out of a self-giving love to serve others. And we are to show what that looks like across the whole spectrum of our lives. What does it mean to live under the lordship of God? But secondly, we live amidst idolatry in all of those areas. There's a missionary encounter. We see what's good. We were driving in today to the church today. We just said, this is a beautiful city. It's very easy to not see your own city. Maybe you do. Maybe you're very proud of it and you should be. This is a beautiful city. There's probably, probably if I stayed here for a long, I'd see there's probably so much good. Your lives are enriched by living in this city. There's so much good. But at the same time, I'm sure there's a lot of evil, a lot of injustice, a lot of pain, a lot of idolatry. And I think, and this is where it starts to get a bit controversial, that the last few years have exposed how much our evangelical churches has capitulated to idolatry. As we think of those hot-button things like racism, political ideologies, COVID, and the idolatry of freedom, we've begun to see how the church has so often found itself into different camps, both of which have creational insights and both of which harbor idolatry. And instead of allowing the gospel to be at the center of our lives where we can say yes to the insights of both and no to the idolatry of both, we've embraced that as our ultimate commitment. And instead of being a contrast city 
and showing what the city should look like, what we've done is we've often just fallen headlong into the very things that are destroying the cities of our nation. And so what that's often done is entrench some even more fully. I know that I'm right. But what I'm convinced that it offers is that it offers an opportunity for the church in North America to be, repent and be the kind of city it was, God intends it to be. An alternative community made up of all races. An alternative community made up of people who embrace all the insights of the left and the right and reject all its idolatries and injustices. A people who model what true freedom is. A freedom that serves others and glorifies God in a sacrificial love and commitment to serve others. This is what God wants us to be. And he says to you, work it out. It's not going to, whoops, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult as you struggle with the idolatry of your time. It's going to be really difficult. But work it out and make Christ at the center the one who's provided this new exodus, the one who's made you into this new Jerusalem, the one who is bringing and has already begun a new creation. Live that out as a preview amidst the city of Prescott and make sure people that are outside see what is coming, what is coming on that final day. May God bless you May God bless you with his spirit so the new creation will become more and more of a reality among you for the sake of your neighbors and the glory of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're so thankful for this message of Isaiah as a powerful and challenging one, as one of the pain of judgment, but also one of the joy of the coming new creation. Lord, may we hear this good news and may we focus our lives again this morning on the person of Jesus Christ who has brought that new exodus and that new creation. May we be a community that embodies this more and more for your glory and the sake of your name, but also for those around for whom idolatry is destroying their lives. Enable us to feel their pain, to bring good news in our lives and our words and our deeds. May we truly be witnesses of that great event in our lives, words, and deeds, that great event of the cross and the resurrection, that mighty act, saving act in history. Lord, bless us with the spirit to that end. In Christ's name, amen.